Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, CMO at BDEX, along with BDEX's founder and CEO, David Finkelstein. What's new, David? Hey, Jesse. Uh, I don't know what's new, but, uh, you know, I can't say it's new that it's been a busy week because that's it's always a busy week, right? Um, but uh, I guess what's new is our, our new guests. So I'm excited. We've had, uh, you know, start, almost started to get too much into the weeds in our pre-show conversation. So uh, looking forward to getting into it now with our guest. Absolutely. Um, and as you said, we have another great guest. So we get to welcome on Jason Downey, U.S. CEO of Making Science, a digital acceleration company formerly of Bain and Company and Lodeme, as well as Google. And so I'm going to go ahead and bring him in. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be on, David and Jesse. Yeah, absolutely. We're glad to have you here today, Jason. So uh, why don't you kick us off, give our listeners and viewers a little information about you, a little background. We heard a quick glimpse from Jesse, but why don't you give us a little more about your background and tell us what got you to create Making Science, get into uh, what you're doing at Making Science as well for, for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So uh, my, my journey, uh, professional journey has been very varied. Uh, like I think it's kind of lots of twists and turns. Uh, I started at Bain & Company, as Jesse said. I was there for about 10 years uh, out of college, and uh, I actually left Bain uh, to uh, take a detour into um, professional singing. <laughs> I was at a, in an acapella band. We toured, toured the U.S. for four years full-time, uh, and then after that, I, I owned a, a local bar uh, here in Maryland where I live for several years. Um, and then got back into business uh, after after those two detours uh, at a company called Lodemy, uh, as Jesse mentioned. I, I built a, I didn't know what a cookie was. This was like 15 years ago. Um, and I just, I learned about the online advertising space and the digital space from the ground up um, and went from kind of a, you know, a data analyst to chief revenue officer at Lodemy in 10 short years. Uh, learned a lot about the business, built a data exchange, um, and then, you know, work with a lot of different data providers, uh, which I know that you, you folks do at BDEX, uh, there's a lot of similarities there. So that was fun, as you said, to talk about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I worked at Google for three years. I was the uh, director of uh, data and technology for the Americas. I was in charge of the digital maturity, uh, advancement for Google's biggest clients based in the, uh, in the U S uh, that book included CPG <clears throat> auto um, technology, some finance, some retail, uh, and then recently found Making Science, uh, which is a global uh, digital acceleration company. <clears throat> it's a premier Google partner, um, you know, and uh, <clears throat> my boss, the, the, the CEO, uh, who has, you know, founded Making Science um, seven or eight years ago, uh, is expanding into the U.S. So it was a great opportunity. We have several um, former Google employees on the team. We, we specialize in the Google uh, Google tech stack uh, on behalf of clients. Um, and we are an official uh, reseller of, of GMP. Um, and so that's where we are. And we've got a lot of different kind of technology and expertise that enables uh, the elevation of, of marketing efficiency uh, for clients uh, here in the US. That's awesome, Jason. That's some journey uh, going from Bain to uh, 
uh, making music and, uh, <laughs> and and operating a bar back and then into ad tech. So uh, that, that's some journey for sure. Um, Look, one of the things we, we wanted to jump into is is privacy, and uh, I'd love to get your take on on you know obviously there's been so much in the past few years that has changed with respect to um, the internet and privacy and data, and uh, talk to us about what you guys are doing and what you guys are seeing um, with with respect to um, digital transformation with your clients. Yeah, sure, happy to. I mean. You know, um, as you said, David, the privacy issue is is growing in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> making science is interesting. We're we're based in in uh, Madrid, Spain. We're one of the largest uh, Google agencies in Spain, uh, if not the largest. Um, and so, as as a lot of the uh, viewers know, the kind of the privacy movement on the internet started uh, really accelerated in 2018 with the uh, introduction of GDPR. Uh, uh, General Data Protection Regulation Act was um, put into place in the EU uh, to allow for uh, better protection for consumers. The U.S. was kind of a little a little behind, um, and still a little bit behind in terms of the, um, you know, the actual day to day dealings with with privacy regulations. CCPA, the California uh, Act, came out. Um, I think it was twenty nineteen or twenty. Um, more states have followed suit, so it's it's accelerating, right? The the need for uh, regulators to understand the relationship between the internet, brands, technology providers, and the consumer, um, and so privacy is is a, is a hot topic, and it's becoming more and more of a hot topic as as we go forward. Um, it's interesting because obviously consumer expectations are rising as far as their privacy and. Um, you know, how their data is captured and used, captured, stored and used. Um, but um, consumers are also very concerned with personalization, right? They don't want to see ads for things they've already purchased. They don't want to see irrelevant ads. Um, so, you know, I know personally as a user, I like to see things that I'm interested in and I'd like to, you know, have cookies that store data. So it makes, it makes things easier for me to operate while I'm online. Um, so there's kind of a, a threading of the needle that has to happen um, where user expectations, technological changes and regulation all have to kind of like coexist. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what you're, what you guys feeling is, is on it, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly a hot topic and, and brands are dealing with it, with, with it in different ways. Yeah, we actually have a, a comment from uh, from one of our viewers right now that says very interesting dichotomy for sure. And it is, it, it, that's a, it's a great way to put it. Um, you have all these consumers that say, I want personalization, I want things targeted to me. Um, but then at the same time, you have all these regulations that are saying, well, you know, um, you know, we're not gonna allow that, right? We're gonna limit how you can do that. And you have to jump through a certain number of hoops in order to be able to do that. Um, so it, it definitely is a challenge. Um, you know, we're seeing it across the board with our clients as well. There's a little, you know, level of frustration in the sense that they want to serve their customers better at the same time that, uh, you know, they have to deal with all these limitations and tracking and, and regulations that are that are affecting their ability to do that. Um, one of the things that we always talk to uh, our customers about is it really comes down to sort of this value exchange. It's this, you know the the you know the brand 
the publisher, the website, whoever, wherever it is that you are, you know, the app, you have to first establish a level of trust with the consumer to make them feel comfortable sharing that, that data, making them comfortable saying, yes, you can track me. Um, right. Cause, cause sort of the default easy default is especially on iOS is no, don't track me. No, I don't want you to track me. No, I don't want to track me. But sort of you have the other situation where if you're using an app and you trust, you know, this app for whatever the reason you trust the brand and you want a better experience, then you're more apt to say yes. And so it's up to that really is up to that brand, that publisher to build that level of trust and help the consumer feel comfortable that they're getting some sort of value in exchange for being tracked or sharing some data. Yeah, totally. I was just going to uh, latch on to your value exchange, you know, terminology. This is exactly right, right? Like if you, you give something private, you want to get something that you value in return, right? So uh, in, uh, in our range of clients, we see a lot of different uh you know, levels of success with that, right? Like uh, people, I, I heard one people, one, one of my uh, partners when I was working at Google said, you know, people want to have a relationship with their car, but they don't want to have a relationship with their cookie, you know, <laughs> like, like cookies that they eat, not, not internet cookies. But so it's, so it's sort of like, you know, how, how much value exchange can you get? Like, you know, how close are you to the consumer, right? If you're selling shoes in an app, and you give a 20% discount because you gave your email address, that's a pretty good exchange, right? Of value. But yeah. uh, if you're walking in the grocery store and you pick up uh, a roll of toilet paper, like, do you want to give your email address to, you know, get more info on your toilet paper or whatever? It's just, it's not the same thing. So depending on what business you're in, depending on like the repeatness of the, of the consumer, how close you are to the consumer, is it a direct to consumer transaction or is it more like a like a anonymous type of a transaction when you buy something all those things factor in right and so we see a lot you know as i mentioned that I, we did a lot of work with cpgs there's a lot of you know sweepstakes that are happening like you see coke for example they you you can scan the the can right with your with your phone to get rewards and things like that there's a lot of innovative things that that brands are doing to to make that connection, right? So if you, if you, it's like the box top thing when we were kids with cereal, except it's digital, right? So um, that's, those things are all, the value exchange is crucial for sure. Jesse, I love how you have to, uh, <laughs> as soon as he mentions QR code, our QR code. <laughs> I saw that. I, I was like, <laughs> that was amazing. Somebody doing that? Jesse, you're very tricky. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was my cue. Um, well, this has been a really great conversation on privacy, but um, I know the next one's going to be really good too. Um, something that we talk about a lot, first party data strategy. Um, could you kick us off on this one, Jason, um, talking about first party data strategy and CDP, CDA? Yeah, sure. I mean, this dovetails quite nicely with the privacy piece, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a value exchange with a consumer, <clears throat> you're collecting what we call, you know, first party data, which is data that you own, data that you've collected directly from a consumer that was consented um, in a very explicit way, right? GDPR talks a lot about, you know, consent and is, are you a processor? Are you a controller of the data? Well, in with first party data, there, there leaves no doubt 
as to how the data was collected, who collected it, who owns it, what's it, what, what is it used for, et cetera. So first party data is kind of the gold, right? It's, it's, it's the, the way that you differentiate. I know we talked about, um, you know, the, the title of this, of this chat being first party data in the machines, creating lasting differentiation. I believe that the way that you create lasting differentiation into the future with, we're going to talk about AI a little bit. We're going to talk about, you know, building lookalike audiences and machine learning and all this sort of stuff. The, the one thing that you can do um, as a brand to create differentiation for yourself into the future is to collect as much first party data as you can in the most consented way possible so that you have the highest bar, right? Regulations keep changing, uh, you know, laws and things keep getting added on and on and on. But if consumer trusts you, David, to your point, and they've given you their data freely in a value exchange way, you're going to be great. Right. In 20 years, like we talked about at Google a lot, like, you know, when I was there, like we're not trying to like get to a standard that gets us past the next set of laws that may or may not come out. Right. That somebody may pass in 2024, 2025. We want to be preparing for 2050. We want to be preparing for the future. And the way that you prepare for the future is you collect first party data consented directly and then you organize it and you utilize it in a way that's differentiated for your brand in order to create the most, uh, the best and deepest relationships with your consumers, um, which makes your marketing, uh, your messaging, and your uh, you know ROI the uh, most efficient it can be. Yeah, for sure. And that's you know that's exactly what we talk about with our clients is is the importance of that first party data. Um, and the importance of not just collecting it and managing it properly, but safekeeping, right? Going back to the privacy and making sure that it's it's kept secure, um, because the last thing you want to do is is end up with a breach and and lose that level of trust. Uh, too many companies have done that in the past. Um, what was that one? Cambridge Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. What was that? One? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, every once in a while, you get like I just got something. Uh, I just. I didn't even know about it, but I guess uh, lens crafters had a breach and there was some data of mine was was breached there and I ended up getting a $60 check. <laughs> so <Woo -hoo>. like, <laughs> $60 check came in the mail, actually for me and for my wife and for my daughter. So it's like, uh, oh, okay, um, that's interesting, but that was because of a data breach. Um, and so you don't wanna be a victim of that. And I think that uh, above and beyond you know, collecting and, and building that relationship is also securing that data and keeping it secure so that you don't end up uh, in what could be a really worse, much worse situation, uh, which is losing all of that trust with your, with your. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, security is one thing for sure. And that, and, and then there's also organization, right? Like <clears throat> I think this topic, uh, Jesse was, you know, one PD plus, CDA, CDP, right? CDA stands for Customer Data Architecture, which is a, uh, a term I found out which was coined by Accenture and uh, a colleague of mine now who uh, works at PwC, uh, Brad, and he coined it, and he and his team coined it, which is amazing. Uh, I didn't know that. I was among celebrities until recently. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then CDP obviously is a customer data platform, which is kind of a, a, a more <clears throat> a specific term uh, to be, you know, where, where data, uh, customer data is kept, collected, you know, connected and that sort of thing. 
Um, so, you know, protecting it and then organizing it, right? Um, what I've, people have asked me like, what is, what does CDA or CDP mean to you? And, and what I think, you know, kind of the ideal way, a CDP is basically like multiple data sources in and then, you know, multiple ways to connect it in different places. Like that's kind of the very generic version of it. So when you take your first party data, you put it somewhere and then you get other first party data. Like we talk a lot about data de-siloing, right? So if you're a big brand, if you're an auto uh, US OEM, you have data from your cars, right? Inside the, the owner uh, data, you have uh, dealer data, you have you know your website data that's collected with Google Analytics or Adobe or whatever. You have um, call center data, right? There's all this data that, and then lots of different departments own it. I mean, there's hundreds of databases that need to be, you know, de-siloed and put in one place that can be used. And this is like early stages for almost all big companies. It's, it, it hasn't even happened yet. We haven't even scratched the surface. To use an American baseball analogy, you know, people say, oh, I'm, I'm still in the first inning. I, I believe that when it comes to CDA, CDP, we're sweet. We're not even in the game yet. We're still in the parking lot, like looking for a ticket, you know, to get in. It's just, it's, it's just a lot of work to be done. Um, and I, I, I think that like with the, with the advent of the cloud, we talked a little bit earlier about AWS, whether it's AWS or Azure or GCP, you, you know, I, I try to encourage like our clients to own their data, right? Own the instance of their data and, um, don't like give it to somebody else to do it, but to to have you know the people and processes in place for you to own your data. I sort of think of it like um, if you have your own, if if you use a kind of a CDP, you're renting space in an apartment building. You're renting like an apartment, like where all your data goes, but somebody else owns the building. Whereas if you you know uh, acquire an instance. Of a, of a cloud instance, and you can build it up from scratch to your own specifications, you're buying the land on which your data is going to be built. And then you can build, you know, your own uh, apartments and, and join them all together. So I don't know what you think of that analogy, but that's kind of what I've started to be testing, testing it out. That's good. Uh, yeah, it's good. Um, and we've had conversations on here before about the importance of data stewardship is the, the whole idea that someone needs to be in charge of this data. Um, and take responsible responsibility and ownership of it um, within the organization. And sometimes that's multiple people. But, you know, again, getting back to making sure that the data is secure, making sure that it is uh, being shared properly across divisions and things like that. Uh, that's another important aspect uh, that, that we see. And I think that go, that sort of plays into the CDA part of it, right? The, the, the architecture. Yeah, you can you can have different permissions for different databases, right? Like, and some of them are more sensitive than others, right? If you're a bank, <laughs> uh, you know, and and you know, you have customer data on your account data, then that's going to have a much different level of security than if you're a bank that has a sweepstakes going on or a website. You know, you're collecting data through the through the pixel, and you're you know collecting through a first party cookie or whatever. So, for sure. Definitely. Well, I guess this is a good time to transition into our third topic, which is. Yes, we had a question out there. I don't know. Oh, did we? Yeah. Oh, I'm missing these comments. I didn't see these. Okay. Let's see. We've got a few. We've got if the intent is to improve the relationship with the client and the client finds value in the relationship, then you will be looking at the data the right way. 
That's an interesting comment. Any thoughts there, um, Jason or David? Yeah, I think that's right. I think he's talking about the, you know, relationship. It's the value exchange, right? If, mm -hmm. uh, For sure. Yep. And then he continued on. So composable is the direction we are moving for most businesses. Do you think it is a five-year timeline before it's commonplace for CDPs? You know, in making science, we use that term as well. Uh, we agree with uh, Don. It's a great, it's a great term, composable CDP. So it's like, you know, you're adding, you know, you don't have to have one, like I said, one company, you're not renting an apartment, you're buying the land. And on that land, you can put all sorts of different structures uh to compose what's a bespoke you know version of this of your cdp or your cda um again one data source in and then maybe you get another data source in from like if you use the oem analogy again you have you know factory data you have truck data you have fleet data you have you know uh call center data you have email data right all these different data sets come in and then you can use them for different purposes, whether they be IT side or, or marketing side or both. Um, so composable is the way. And then you asked about five years. Yeah, I think <clears throat> what I what I all, often tell my clients is start now because you're never gonna finish. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the end is, but like it's gonna be a while. So you, you know, and you keep learning, you keep evolving, you keep changing, you keep adding to it, test and learn, fail fast, right? Culture of experimentation, all that sort of stuff. Um, that has to start happening. If you're if you're if you're if you're not doing that now, your competitors are, and they're going to get ahead. Because to me, the differentiation, as I said, is the data relationship, the the data you collect, the relationship you have with the consumer, plus your culture of how you're going to use that data, run it up against all the different cool stuff you can do. Um, you know, from here going forward, and as things advance with the machines, uh, to put it simply. Um, that culture is what's going to differentiate you and get you to have a leg up. Yeah. And, and I think timelines are always, always interesting to talk about because we could say it's five years, but you know, at the pace things move, it could become one year, you know what I mean? And it's just, everything happens so fast. I and mean, we, we had a conversation just over a year ago on, on, and on this um, podcast about, uh ai and software development and how someday you'll be able to just tell you know an ai what you want to develop and and you can already do that you know it's a crazy ago, right a year ago you couldn't and mm -hmm. and, it's here. and it's like when we were talking about it we were saying five years we were saying yeah probably five years from now and then it happened in a year so to to don's point uh with re with respect to the question you know Gut says five years is probably a reality, but but then it'll happen faster, most likely. Yeah, that's just yeah. It was like Moore's law, like is I think a little out of date, right? <laughs> Moore's law was like yeah. double every two years or something. I think it's like double every two months now. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, everything happens a lot faster now, and and now you know this probably will help us segue into the the next conversation, which is AI. With with AI, we're seeing the uh the ability to advance a lot of you know areas of technology that uh in ways that probably no one really thought about you know and all of a sudden there's so many things that you can do with ai so obviously one of the things we want to talk about is applications for marketing uh, there's so many out there i mean there's so many out there it's crazy and it's not all just generative generative um you know there's all kinds of 
you know, things with respect to ad targeting and, and things like that too. So um, we'd love to talk to, uh, to get your take on that, Jason. Yeah, sure, David. So I, I think about, you know, at Making Science, we think about AI for marketing as, as a maturity curve, right? In the same way, for years, we've been talking about the BCG digital maturity curve, which is which is awesome, right? It's like you go from nascent to uh, to emerging, connected, uh, modern marketer, et cetera. Same thing, you know, we think about for, for AI. Um, and, you know, we have like, you know, one of the one of the slides that I often, you know, put up when I talk to clients that are new or we're taking the next step with them is, where are you on the AI maturity curve? Where do you wanna be? What kind of capabilities do you have currently to take advantage of you know, these different initiatives that we have in, uh, on the curve? And then what do you need you know, internally to get there, right? We, we talk about three Ps a lot, right? You know, people process platforms. Do you have those things in place to, uh, to take advantage of the AI? And you have to get those things in place in order to really do it. So when I think about the AI maturity curve, you know, I think about like, Basically, to put simply, and this is, David, to your point, there's many, many different ways to think about it. But the way that I simply try to think about it is automation, predictive, and then generative, right? And, like, that's kind of a, a way to move along the curve. So automation, basically, you're doing things faster. Uh, you're doing things, um, you know, with AI to make things easier for your people to do things in a shorter amount of time so you can do more with less. Uh, so that's automation. And then predictive is like, you know, which customers do you want to target for, for marketing and how much do you want to pay, right, in the bidding process, for example, to target those people. And then generative is what do you want to say to those people and what's the most efficient way to say it. So, you know, we have in Making Science, like I said, we have different tools for each of those uh general stages and there's a bunch of different things you can do you know in each of those but does that make sense as sort of a you know kind of a framework yeah i like that a lot actually i just i actually took a note on that automation predictive and generative and and i like the way you broke that down i think that makes a, a heck of a lot of sense yeah yeah i think it's just you know the generative piece i, I was talking to some google folks uh a couple months ago we had a we had a little um, all day session in, in New York with, and, and one of the women I was speaking to at Google has been working on generative AI for like five years, right? And in cloud. And she's like, wow, like since ChatGPT came out in Q4, like the whole world's gone haywire. And we, you know, it's like, we're getting all this attention now, but we've been working on it for, for a long time. And, and there's been a lot of applications already, but now it's like, now that people, you know, once people get their hands on stuff, it's right. just like, it just like blows up, right? So that's where we are now. It's like, oh, I, I can write, you know, in making science, we have a product that allows for um, a retailer to write product descriptions for 10,000, you know, or more of their products at once, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, like I have blue shoes, I have green high tops, I have, you know, red low tops, whatever. And so like, you can, with our UI, you can put in like the tone of voice for the brand. Is it playful? Is it serious? Is it scientific? Is it funny? You know, whatever. And then you could say, I want short descriptions or I want long descriptions or I want, you know, more focus on the images, you know, whatever the case may be. And then you put it in 
And then there's a human in the loop aspect. So you have like an algorithm that says, you know, like these 10,000 descriptions, like 90% of them are, are great. They're in the ballpark, but these 10% you may want to look at. So you can have a, you know, a human go in and look at spot check all of the different descriptions to make sure that they came out right. You can also toggle between Vertex AI um, and ChatGPT. So you can have the Google LLM or you can have the, um, the uh, Microsoft LLM. So, you know, these are just, that, but that's like one example of a generative use case, right? But then there's predictive where you're saying like, you know, great, I've got all these descriptions, but are they working? Who am I talking to? Or am I, am I you know, am I showing Jason an ad for, uh, you know, women's shoes or whatever the case may be that, you know, it's not quite applicable. So you have to have like the right scoring and the right modeling for the audiences. I know at, at BDEX, you, you know, we were talking beforehand about mm -hmm. how you create lookalikes based on a, a first party data set. Like, are you, you know, predictively talking to the right people? And then what are you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so for us, it's more predictive when we're talking about audiences because one, we're looking at, you know, historical data, you know, people that have, you know, had some interaction, a purchase or, or a conversion of some sort. And then we're using that to predict and then feeding that back into the analysis to improve the predictions going forward. And, and yeah, so it's a, it, that is a complete predictive AI for sure. Yep. Very cool. Well, anything else to add on AI applications for marketing? There's too many. I know. <laughs> There's too happen? many. And, and every day I see another like LinkedIn post that says, oh, these are the, the top marketing um, AI tools. And guess <laughs> what? That graphic gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, it's like a Lumascape and it's just getting out of hand. Oh, he broke out the Lumascape. <laughs> when I, first, uh, I, have to, I always give them a plug every once in a while because you know they're they're friends as well. They've been on the show, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Terry, Terry's the man. Um, I like when I got to, when I got to load me in two thousand and ten. You know, they handed me a Lumascape, and I didn't know what a publisher was or an average. You know, like what a um, you know SSP, a DSP, DMP. Like you know, I'm an mm -hmm. alphabet soup of of the ad tech space, and now. I think there was only one Lumascape at that point. Now there's like 20 or 30 or more. It's right. amazing. There's global and there's, you know, OTT and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, AI, I mean, it's like, I, I, I come back to it. I still think we're in the parking lot looking for a ticket. I, I It's yeah. just going to get, it's going to get crazy. I saw a stat, um, somebody on my, on my team uh, uncovered this stat that said that only 3% of companies have a productized AI solution today, which is pretty amazing uh, considering how many, how 100% of companies are saying, talking about it, yeah, right. <laughs> but, right? But to have actually like something that you can like touch and feel that you can demo, you can use, you know, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's getting more and more, like you said, every day there's another one that comes out and I think everybody's just kind of racing to do that. Yeah. I think and also, your point before about ChatGPT. I mean, once that came out and everybody could get their hands on it, then it kind of felt more real. And so everybody just started talking about it more. And, and like you said, there were always these other tools, right? I mean, we already had our tool. There's all these other tools that existed within, you know, that use AI and like, you know, Facebook and, and Amazon, Google, they've all been using it. 
Um, but it was never anything that you could touch and feel. And as soon as um, chat GPT was released and everybody could log in and start asking it to do things, um, it just kind of, I think that helped kind of get the snowball over the hill and now it's just rolling. <laughs> just accelerating, you know, and it's funny. I was just, I was just had a thought about, um, you know, Skynet, right? Terminator two, like it gets plugged in and every, like, when is, the, <laughs> when is everything going to become self-aware? And um, when I was in Cannes this, this summer, I was talking to a couple of uh, clients and prospects and they're like, big brands, right? And they're like, we have to use this responsibly. And that's a really important thing too, right? There's hallucinations, there's, um, you know, misinformation, all this sort of stuff happening. And so like, how do you solve for that? It's like, it's run amok, you know what I mean? Like when the internet first came out, it's like, everybody has everything doing it. Like, and now that the algorithms are getting so great, you may have seen that movie Social Dilemma, Yep. on netflix if you haven't i mean yeah. if for, for the viewers if you haven't seen social dilemma definitely watch it yeah, i watched I it and i watched it yeah like mind-blowing right and i and i i had to go um i have kids that are now i don't know 19 through 24 but like three years ago when it came out i sat them all down and said you come here and watch this with me again because you got to understand what's happening to you <laughs> right yeah. somebody in the in the somebody in the in the movie one of the experts said, you know, if you, if you don't know what the product is, the product is you, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's just interesting how the AI is making that more and more possible. And so you have to just be really responsible too, right? You have to use it. You have to test and learn. You have to get good at it. You have to, you know, create differentiation for your brand, but you always also have to know that like, you know, the implications of all of it. And so it's just, yeah. it's tricky, you know? It is tricky and it, it's scary to to an extent because every new technology gets abused. And so, um, you know, just as we've seen in the ad tech space, all the ad fraud and all of that, well, there's AI is going to create a whole new level of fraud, right? Um, you know, we had uh, someone on here talk about um, privacy, uh, data privacy, as far as, you know, your own data um, and the fact that all of us have information about ourselves out there, right? Your name and your address and who knows what else is out there, right? Uh, well, apparently there are fraudsters already using that and using AI to use that to target all of these phishing scams. So it used to be that, you know, you'd get a phishing scam and it might tell you something like, you know, try to, you know, start up a conversation with you about doing a favor for your boss or something like that. And they're posing as your boss. Uh, we get all of those all the time, but uh, apparently there's some really scary ones where they're posing as as like you know, school administrators and telling you that there's some something's wrong with you know your child at school, and they can do all of this because all that information is out there. But not only that they can do it, they used to be able to do it, you know, a couple a day, but now with AI they can automate this whole process and they can target thousands of people at once. It's pretty million, scary. yeah, I mean, millions, millions per minute, and you know. Like I'm lucky enough to have both my parents still around. And my mom is like, she'll text me like, you know, Jason, should I click on this? Mom, don't click on anything ever. Just yeah. like, just don't. And, and I'm, I'm like worried, like I'm going to, I'm starting to turn into that. Right. <laughs> it's like, what, what I have to keep up with the AI just so I don't end up, you know, falling victim to, to scams. You know, I'm calling my kids now like for the, for the free tech support, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy. Well, well, this brings us 
closer to the end of the show, so I want to make sure we at least get into tech stack, Jason. Um, this is something we ask all the guests who come on Deconstructing Data. What are some of your favorite tools in your tech stack? <laughs> well, for us, you know, we are, as I said, we're a Google shop. You know, making science in the U.S. is, is uh, mostly a Google shop. That's where our expertise lies. Most of our employees on the team in the U.S. Uh, used to work there. So we um, obviously use um, Google Analytics 4, which is the new one, which, you know, is App Plus Web um, with a lot of AI mixed in there to um, making sure the tagging is set up for your sites. Um, you know, we use uh, DB360 for, uh, and this is all marketing tech stack, by the way, for the most part, you know, for, uh, for programmatic, um, you know, campaign manager, track all that sort of stuff, search ads 360. So that's kind of like the main, you know, the main and, and GCP, uh, all that stuff is built on, on Google cloud. Uh, we have a couple of, um, really interesting, um, solutions, right? We have a, like I was talking, I talked about automation. So we have, um, a product called Ad Machina, which is, uh, built on GCP, which allows for automation of your search ad writing. So if you have, if you're a travel company and you're doing offers and you're, you're changing your campaigns, we have uh, some AI that allows the ads to be automated that's built on GCP uh, and executed in search. We have um, uh, some predictive AI called Gauss, which is uh, aptly named for for, for the scientist. And basically that's a predictive modeling tool that's built on GCP that allows for um, lots of applications to come out of that. Like, um, you know, MMM, uh, um, audience expansion, audience scoring, uh, all that sort of stuff allows you to do custom bidding um, in programmatic and in search. Uh, and then I mentioned generative AI, we have um, trust gen AI, trust generative AI, which allows clients to write their product descriptions and all that stuff is built on is built on Google. Very cool. Awesome. Some new ones on there. Well, um, since you have such an interesting background, especially in music, I want to make sure and at least ask you one of our post topic questions, Jason. So if you could go back when you first came into the industry, what is the number one piece of advice you would give yourself? Go with the flow. Go with the flow, right? Don't don't get too stressed. I tell my kids, you know, they're always, you know, they're starting their careers. You know, my my oldest uh, our oldest daughter is is in art, uh, and she's a photographer. She's a really talented photographer, and she's doing some real estate photography. She's a hustler, you know. She's doing real estate photography. She's doing some of her art, artistic photography, and then recently she just got a job. <laughs> surprise, surprise! At a digital ad agency, and she's doing a lot of creative work. Uh, there and it's just like she didn't expect to do that and now she's turned and started that you know my son's a, my oldest kid's graduated as a full stack developer at Booz Allen and he's like oh, I want to do video games I want to do you know get into video game development do some other things I think the way that you know I went from consulting to singing to bar to to ad tech to Google to making science like you know just like you can take lessons from each place and apply it to the next thing. And I think really it's about focusing on the people and focusing on what you, you know, what you can learn at each stop along the way. Um, and then just don't get too stressed that you're, you're, you know, I have somebody on my team that, you know, had a significant birthday and she was like, Oh, like I, 
you know, I, I felt like I should be somewhere in my life, you know, at this point. And it's just like, well, like there is no right, you know, right way to do it. It's just, you know, are you enjoying the journey? Are you learning? Are you progressing? Are you having fun? Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So go with the flow and be flexible and, and just be, be always willing to learn. It's great I, advice. I like it. Definitely. Well, that's really great. And in closing, Jason, would you like to tell listeners how they can find you? Yeah, sure. I guess. So, I mean, you know, it's Jason Downey. I'm, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me there. We have makingscience.com. You can go there and, and see what's happening. Um, you know, and friend me on Facebook too. I'm, I'm like the older generation. I'm still on Facebook. I don't do Instagram much, <laughs> but uh, my uh, my wife and I just came back from Everest Base Camp. We just trekked there. Uh, I literally got back from Nepal like three days ago. Wow. Um, yeah, and so like all the all the updates are on there. From uh, that was good times. I'm actually gonna. I think I'll put something on LinkedIn about that as well. It's been a a lifelong dream of mine to get get to see Mount Everest with my own eyes. So that was pretty pretty awesome. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys have done any trekking, but it's definitely worthwhile. Being outside is one of my favorite things to do. Same here. Yeah, definitely. No, well, that's really great. Thank you so much for joining us. And audience members, we hope you'll check out BDEX's Omni IQ, which is the QR code I plugged in the middle of the show. So if you're seeing the video, you can scan the QR code. But if you're listening on podcasts, Simply go to bdux.com and click the try for free button um, and then just simply upload a CSV of your first party data and get gender, birth year and household income analytics on your data. There's no credit card required. We don't do anything with your data. And um, so, yeah, check it out. We'd love to hear what you think. And we'd also love to hear from you about what you think of the show. So please reach out to us at info at if you know anyone who you think we should have on the show and also just share your qualitative data with us so we can make it better for you. Thank you again so much for being here, Jason. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, David. It was really great. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. Take care. Great to, see, great to chat with you and uh, hopefully we'll do this again. Yeah, I love it. All right. Sounds awesome. Good. Bye.